All right, we're still in Acts chapter 3. Last week we talked about the infectious church, the spread of the, the infection of Christianity, and what that means and what that looks like. Today we're going to move on to Peter's sermon. This is the second sermon. It kind of follows the same um, sort of pattern as this. Well, they all, these, these sermons we're seeing in Acts, we don't near about see all of them, like I said, but the ones we do see, they, they're like uh, an archetype of, of a New Testament teaching. They give us the patterns, the themes. And so we're going to start in uh, verse 11. Let's just read. We'll just read till I stop. Because I'm not exactly sure how this is going to go, but I've got a lot. I've read a lot, studied a lot, so this could this could get bogged down. I'll try not to let it. So, verse uh, Acts chapter three, verse eleven. While he was clinging, this is the man that was just healed. Okay. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people. Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this, or why do you gaze at us, as if by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. All right, let's notice a few things first. Notice what Peter, old Peter, every time a group, a, a crowd comes together, Peter's ready to tell them about Jesus. Okay? That's so different from the Peter we knew before, who was just scared to death, you know. But now he's he's bold and he's he, he's ready. He wants people to know about Jesus. And he immediately says, this is not, I didn't do this. Okay. So Peter takes no credit for this miracle. Peter preaches with boldness. And uh, wait a minute. I think I might what I do here. Yeah. Okay, so Peter invokes the name of Jesus and faith in the name of Jesus here, and that's very important. It's not just the name, it's not just the faith, it's both. So Jesus plus faith equals healing, both physically here and spiritually within our spirits. But the first thing we'll notice is Peter doesn't take credit for this miracle. That's a great danger on something like this, is to try to take that glory for yourself. Well, look what I did. But Peter's very careful to make sure that they know he didn't do this, and he's going to go on to explain to them how this miracle has occurred. This whole context of this is, how is this man healed? There we go. That's very important to remember. That's the big question here The people want to know. How is this man, who we've been seeing sit at the beautiful gate for all these years, he's never took a step, is suddenly walking and leaping and praising God in the temple? How did, how did this thing happen? Okay. That's the big question. 
question. That's why all these people have come together. They want to know what happened here. <clears throat> all right. Another thing we notice about what Peter's saying is how he's speaking directly to the people. Okay, no qualifications, no niceties. He's not trying to protect their feelings. He's speaking very plainly and straightforward and boldly to these people. Let's read what he says here. First, he tells them what's happening. He says, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Why do you gaze at us? As if by our own power or piety, we have made him walk. No, no. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. That word, servant, there, um, is not normally used for Jesus. Um, it's only used a few times, mostly right around here in this section of Acts. Uh, it says... In MacArthur's notes, says Peter depicted Jesus as God's personal representative. This is an unusual New Testament title for Jesus, used only four other places. And most of them are right here in Matthew, uh, in Acts, except for Matthew 12, 18. So that's just, I thought that was interesting. This, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant, Jesus. The one whom you delivered, okay, notice what it says, you did this. He's not saying they did it, somebody else did it, you did it. You delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when you had decided when he had decided to release him. Right there he's reminding them, you're the ones that said, We have no king but Caesar. That's what they said. Mm-hmm. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted to you. But put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. So that's where we see that it's not just his name, it's faith in the name. And even he says even the faith was through Jesus. There's a little nod to Reformed theology there. Even the faith that we exercise comes its a gift from God. And so, so we see there's a pattern. That's the pattern. Jesus in faith equals healing. Which You could replace that word with salvation. We know that salvation is by faith, not of works. No, we don't have any merit to merit our salvation. The theme that we keep seeing is the prophets foretold this. Right? Remember the first sermon? It was like, this was spoken by the, this is to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he quotes other, uh, some Psalms. These are all fulfillments of Old Testament prophets. I mean, we talked about that at length, I think. What, what's happened here is the world's being turned on its head for these people who have always been taught that their religious observances are what brings them close to God. And now they're being told, nope, it's faith in Jesus. Okay. Verse 18. Let's go to verse 17. And now, brethren, 
I know that you acted in ignorance just as your ruler did also. So they, he's talking to people here, not rulers. This is just the people that's in the temple courts down there by Solomon's porch where this is happening. He tells them, you did it. But then he also, you know, he tells them, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. And then here he comes. Is what he says. Verse 18. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer has thus been fulfilled. So there we see the theme. The prophets have foretold this. Now, you can imagine what they're thinking. What? The Messiah would suffer? What are you talking about? Messiah's going to come and release us from Roman captivity. He's going to restore the, the, the kingdom to Israel. and He's going to be a great military leader, a great political leader. What do, you, what do you mean that he's supposed to suffer? So they missed it, right? So he tells them that God foretold that the, his Christ would suffer, and this has been fulfilled. And so then he gives it to them. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That's a very good verse on repentance. It's a good memorization verse. Um, that's a goodie. You should have that underlined in your Bible. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So what's he telling them? He's telling them to repent. What is repent? That's to do an about face. It's to change your, your perception. The word there is metanoia. Or metanoia. And it means a fundamental change of mind or a new perspective or a new understanding, a new outlook, a new worldview, you might say. And so... What do these people think about Jesus? They all thought he was a false prophet or a false messiah. Uh, he was a blasphemer. Um, you know, he was he was he was crucified. Um, but he's telling them no. That this is the one. This is the Christ that was foretold by the prophets, who you killed. Therefore, repent and return to God. So that your sins may be forgiven. And that's due to them. Because in their mind. We don't have spiritual debt. We're the chosen seed of Abraham. Maybe. What do you What do you mean? We need to repent and return to God. We're chosen. We're the chosen people. We're the covenant people. And our Messiah. Doesn't die on a cross. Our Messiah is an anointing of God. And he's going to come and release us from our captivity. And bring us earthly rewards. Okay? But he's telling them no. He came and he suffered. So now repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. So what are they being told? Your faith in repentance is what's going to save you from your sin. From your spiritual debt. Okay? So they're being told, you, people of Israel... You have spiritual debt. Your status as chosen of Israel will not save you from going to hell. Your religious observances are insufficient. 
Your sacrifices are insufficient. Your high priest is insufficient. Okay? Exactly. So they're being given the all this was pointing to this. Imagine how hard that would be to accept. When you're being, when you're being told your whole life, this is how you come near to God. You observe the Sabbath. You observe the festivals. You make your sacrifices. You do the, the do the prayers three times a day. This is this is how it's done. And they're being told there's a new there's a new way. Okay. So repent and return to God, so that your sins may be wiped away, so you may be forgiven of your spiritual debt. Okay. In order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So they're being told to repent for forgiveness, not to be made good. You're not good. You need you don't need that. You need to be forgiven because you're not good. Okay. Only God is good. That's what Jesus said. Only God is good. There are no good people in heaven except Jesus. You know what's in heaven? Forgiven people. None of us are good. We're forgiven. Okay? And he says, so the times of refreshing may come. I read that to be like abundant life. He said, I've come so that you may have life and have it more abundantly. Because this is all one. It's all contained within the same sentence. So repent and return so that one, your sins may be wiped away. Nor that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Okay? So he says... You can be forgiven, and you can have abundant life if you'll repent and return to God. Kids keep going in 20. And then he keeps going. He says, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things. I had to do a little study on that. Remember in the first sermon when he quotes Joel, and Joel talks about this age. Remember? Let's read it real quick. It won't take for a second. He says, And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth my spirit, and they shall prophesy, period. So there's the beginning of the age that we're currently in. But he doesn't stop there. And I thought that was kind of strange. Why does he go on and finish the thing? He says, And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. That's the end of the age. All right? That's the second coming. So he's kind of bracketing this age of grace. Here's the beginning. God pours out his spirit. Here's the end. The great and glorious day of the Lord. Smoke, fire, judgment. Okay. And it should be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord in that time will be saved. And I was just wondering why. Because that's not happened yet. And the, like what they're talking about right here is what's happening. The spirit, I mean, why are you speaking in tongues? And why do we hear this loud sound? But he goes on and gives them the future. Right? Same thing here. 
he, he tells them the things that God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets to describe and suffer has thus been fulfilled. That's over. That's done. It's happened. So now, therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be forgiven and wiped away now in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, but then he keeps going and says, and that he may send Jesus to Christ appointed for you whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. So he goes ahead and gives them future there. He says, this Jesus, he came, he suffered, he died, he just healed this man, okay, that you see standing before you. His name, faith in his name is what's healed this man, and he's coming back in the future. And it's just, so uh, my notes say, not only has Jesus come and secured your forgiveness and restoration now in this life, this is what he's telling these people, but one day he will leave heaven again and return to us in order to restore all things. And that that word restore is called, it's a, a pocket to stasis. Because I was wondering, what could he be talking about here? Could he be talking about, This is obviously future. You know, there's this big discussion about is there going to be a physical, millennial, earthly reign of Christ? Or is all that second coming just when we're going into the new heavens and new earth? And so I, I've looked up on this word, and that word, apocatastasis, can only be interpreted one way. This is a very good interpretation. It's a restoration. It's not remake. It's not new. It's a restoration of old, what was already made. To me, that speaks very strongly. He is speaking about Christ's return, and he will set up his, he will sit on the glorious throne of David, and he will set up his kingdom on earth and reign from Jerusalem for a number of years. I think we're going to say a thousand years. Now, but, but there's, I'm, I'm of two minds of this, so that's why I said there's, I'm, I'm kind of, there's two ways you can read this. Let's keep reading. So Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. So my, my kind of not sure of this is what are, what are these days he's speaking of? Because the context of this whole thing is what happened here and how is this lame man walking? And the answer to that is Christ, who is not with us, but is in heaven right now, but yet he just healed this man. But Peter decides to tell him that Christ is in heaven, but he's going to come back and restore all things. And then it goes right into this about Moses and the other prophets foretold these days. Now, they foretold both ages. They foretold the coming of the Messiah the first time, the first advent. They foretold the coming of the Messiah the second time, the second advent for judgment. But they had all the stuff mixed and intertwined. And so you could read that to say, Peter says Christ died and suffered as was foretold. He will now, if you repent and believe, he will heal you spiritually from heaven 
And one day he's going to return bodily from heaven and he's going to restore all things. He's going to basically, he's going to restore the kingdom of Israel. Remember what they asked Jesus right before we went into heaven? He said, they said, teacher, will you now restore the kingdom of Israel? Will you restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, that's not for you to know. You will receive power and you will be my martyrs to the world. But th this is what he's talking about. He's going to come, he's going to return, and he's going to restore all things. Not just the kingdom of Israel, but he's going to restore everything. He's going to restore the world. I think that means back to pre-flood conditions. Because Isaiah wrote in 65 that in those days, if a man dies at 100, he would be considered he died as a child. So during the millennial reign of Christ, I believe men will live to be eight, 900 years old like they did before the flood. I mean, Isaiah says that pretty plainly. And we can't say that that's new heavens and earth because it also says that men will die. He says, if they die young, then they will be considered sinners. But obviously people will still be dying. So I just thought that was interesting. But the way that reads, this part about Moses, I'm not sure what Peter meant there. So I, I just can't be dogmatic about it. In the context of the passage, he's talking about what happened to this man. He was just healed by Jesus. He was in heaven. And maybe he's saying all this was foretold, but that he obviously goes and says Christ is coming again until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. And he goes right into, and Moses said... This, this, this. But I'm just not sure if he's talking about Jesus now in heaven or if he's talking about Jesus coming bodily back to earth. Well, some of the commentaries I read took it that way, and then some some said not. Well, that's why that's why I'm saying I don't know the. I don't know Peter's mind here, but it seems like the way the paragraph is structured, he's talking about Moses foretold the days when he would return and restore all things. And so did Samuel and all those after him. They all announced these days. And just the way that reads, to me it reads like he, these days are the days when Jesus will return from heaven and set up his throne in Jerusalem. But well, yes, the, the millennial kingdom is just the earthly manifestation of that. And at the end of the millennial reign, Christ will hand that kingdom over to the Father, and He will, and it will be this earthly kingdom will be incorporated into the universal kingdom of Yahweh. But for a time on earth. Jesus will reign physically from the throne of David in Jerusalem, and all the nations will come there to worship and to pay homage to Jesus. I believe that has to happen. Has to happen. And that that's what Peter's talking about here, that Moses foretold it. Because look what he says. The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Now, what are, what's the big deal that Moses did? The biggest thing. He did a lot of big things, but he, he, he gave the law. He gave Israel the law from Mount Sinai. Jesus, when he returns, he will administer the law from Jerusalem. 
and he's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. So it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. I believe that's talking about Jesus ruling in Jerusalem. And, and uh, justice will be swift and immediate. It's not going to be like our justice now. That's right. That's right. Your money's not going to buy you out of it. This is going to be real justice administered by the king of the world. So that's just my reading. I thought that was, you know. But again, the context of this passage is this man being healed. Why is he healed? How did this happen? Who did it? Jesus did it. He's in heaven. Yet his power is now extending into this world because that's how this man is walking around in front of you right now. Okay, so that's where my... Eh. He didn't have to be here. So it's like Peter... <laughs> if it is what we say, then Peter kind of gave him the answer to the question. It's by faith in Jesus and his name. And then he just kind of moves on, right, to this talk about Jesus returning for judgment and to restore the kingdom. But then in 25, he, it's kind of like he goes back again, and he says, it is you, again, he's talking to them straight, it is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant, which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant, and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. So that sticked on the end there. I don't know if he if he switched to future messianic talk here. It seems to me like he's going back again. He's talking about you are the sons of the prophets. Of the, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers. So I'm not sure there. That's all I'm saying. No, no. Um, but what we can say for sure in verse 22 and 23 is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the, what, what Moses spoke. Jesus is the prophet he spoke about that, will, that, will, that God will rise up from among the people. That is Jesus. And in those verses 24, 25, and 26, he's just telling them, look, this blessing that he promised to that Abraham will come to the seed of Abraham, you're that seed. This Messiah, he is the Messiah. He's, he's, he's fitting. He's from the right line. He is, a, he is from the seed of Abraham, and he's the one. The prophets foretold all this. Now, and yes, you're right. They were expecting Jesus to come back any day. I mean, we really are too, but for them, it was, they really, I mean, because, you know, we've had 2,000 years to look back on and say, well, Obviously, he wouldn't come back immediately. They didn't know that. They were like, man, repent now. He might be back tomorrow. And, you know, that's kind of the way the urgency was right there. Isn't that normal, though? Yeah. I mean, look at post 9 All the freaking churches were filled. They're praying on yeah. the Senate steps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, here we are 23 years later. God's still been, well, God's been even further removed from just about everything. I know there's a chapter break there, but that's really not a good. We need we need to keep going. 
Exactly. It's imminent. It's imminent. If it's imminent for them, it's imminent for us. For us. Like I say, we, we've become kind of, you know, we've been waiting for 2,000 years. Just like they had been waiting a long time for the first time. So they, they, they couldn't believe it happened. But the church saw, man, he just left. And the, the guy, the angel said he's going to come back in the same way. And we, we don't know when that's, when that's happening. So repent now before it's too late, which was what we should be telling people too. repent now before it's too late. But anyway, but let's keep going because this is not over. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail till the next day for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So, there in verse 1 and 2, let's talk about just who, so we got, we got some new people here. Pharisees, I mean the Sadducees, are suddenly on, on the scene. So, we've, during the study, we've already, we know kind of about the church, what their mo was? They, they have a spirit of unity, spirit of spirit of Christ. They have a spirit of prayer. They come together for worship. They're they're living a spirit filled life. They're coming together a temple. But now here we go. We got some new people. Let's talk about them. <clears throat> so we got two basically groups at this time. You got the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees, you notice, we mostly saw in the Gospels. But we didn't see much of the Sadducees. Most of the stuff that happens in Acts is Sadducees. So the Pharisees were basically, they were, they were conservative and legalistic. They were very much about adhering to the law, following the law, observing all things. But they were the people. They were for the people. They were like populists, we would call today. They were conservative populists, but they were very legalistic. The Sadducees were very liberal and materialistic. They were like our elites today. They were uh, just, they didn't believe in much of anything. No the resurrection, none of that. No angels, demons, supernatural events. They, they, were, they were the learned elites of the day. Okay? They were sad. So yeah, let's put it that way. There's a couple of it was inevitable. So let's, let's just kind of let's just kind of get to know the Sadducees and, and um, kind of what's happening here. Got a couple of quotes from uh, R. Kent Hughes on. So we're, this is our first look at persecution of the church, right? Here we go. Persecutions begins. And we talked about the cannon shot that fired the church off the resurrection. Remember that? Well, this is like a will be a good analogy. Who knows what a real gun is? It works with magnets, kind of. I think. Are you saying real? A rail gun. Rail gun. Rail. It shoots projectile through magnetism. There's magnets along a barrel, and each magnet accelerates the projectile 
I mean, they could, they could shoot things for miles and miles. So let's think of this as a rail gun. The resurrection is the first magnet, cannon shot, okay? Projects the church. The next is the coming of the Holy Spirit. Whoa, what happened? What is going on here? Pay attention. Something's happening. That's the next magnet. We can say that this is the third magnet, persecution of the church. Is what helped the church to spread. We cannot deny that. All right? So let's talk about this a little bit. First, the bliss of perfection is what this chapter is called. The bliss of perfection. There's a few things I want to read here. Some of it's about, about persecution of the church. Some of it is about the Sadducees. So we get to kind of get to know a little bit more about them. Just remember. Uh, Pharisees, conservative, legalistic, populists. Sadducees, liberal, materialistic, elitists. So first, let's read about persecution. Persecution is the inevitable element of genuine Christian faith. In John chapter 15, verse 18, 19, and 20, Jesus told his disciples this. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So what Jesus is doing here is he's using what's called fortiori logic, which, th which states this. What is true of the greater will also be true of the lesser. So that's what Jesus is telling them. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you because you're not greater than me. Okay. The martyr, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in 1937, from his cell in Flossenburg, wrote this. Suffering is the badge of the true Christian. The disciple is not above his master. Luther reckoned suffering among the marks of the true church. And one of the memoranda drawn up in the preparation for the Augsburg Confession similarly defines the church as a community of those, quote, who are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake, unquote. <coughs> Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering of Christ, and it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. So, there you go. All right, here's something about the Sadducees. In the book of Acts, persecution was largely Sadducean. They were the materialistic rationalists of their day, denying the supernatural, denying evil spirits, denying angels, and above all, they denied the resurrection, which the apostles boldly preached. To the Sadducees, the Messiah was simply an ideal, and get this, in the Messianic age, merely a process. These men had gained special ascendancy during the intertestamental Maccabean period. During subsequent political regimes, they created a priestly nobility. They were the educated, wealthy elite, but they were also unprincipled collaborationists, political sycophants who would sell their mothers to stay in power. Through a minority, they controlled Jewish political and religious life. They were evil control freaks, and they did not want anyone rocking their boat. So that's who we're talking about here. Yeah. <laughs> when did that get 
mean, wow. there's nothing new under the sun, folks. Amen. Now, now that sound like our today, which we got to kind of remember in this in this time at this place, there was really no distinction between political parties and religious. They were one and the same. The political, the religious leaders were the political leaders, you know. <clears throat> so in verse one and two, how much time we got? Oh man, it's been seventeen. Well, we'll stop there. Okay, it's a good place to stop. Um, we'll pick up. Oh well, let me just let me just point out in verse four. But I what it says. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about five thousand. That's only men. We don't really know how long this took, but I can't imagine it's been that long, right? So we started with 125 in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. At the end of the day, there's three thousand. It doesn't state men; it just says three thousand believers. Now here we are, maybe a few weeks later, man, and there's five thousand men. That's not counting women and children. So this is huge already. I can't imagine this is not just the talk. Everybody's, you know, and the leaders, they're, they got to be freaking out yeah. by now. They're all, you know, and we, they were all mostly on foot. Yes. yes. To try to get the word out. All this was happening right there Think about that. at Solomon's Forge. So far, both times Peter's preached, he's been preaching at Solomon's Portico. So. I could just imagine Peter standing on top of there and all those people are on that side of that temple mount. <laughs> thousands and thousands and thousands of them. Listen to him tell them, you have spiritual debt. And Jesus is the only way to get rid of it. He's the only one that can pay that debt. So, anyway. We're, we're going to see that in this next section. They actually say that. What are we to do here? We can't deny what just happened. But let's do this first. If we first come back next week. Um, remember Kevin talked about the passage where Jesus reads in the synagogue. And he reads the, the, from the prophet Isaiah. And he, he proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. And he stops reading. There's more that goes after that. Right, he speaks about some things. I wanna, I want us to talk about that because that'll give us a little bit more insight into how hard it is on these people to be hearing the things they're hearing, and uh, what what's being asked of them, and why it's. It, he seems to me anyway. There's no way this is going to happen without God intervening and changing and giving them repentance to be able to change their mind about things. About Jesus and who He is and and what what's really going on, and what God's plan is. So we'll talk about that first. Just remind me. We'll read that section in Luke and talk about it for a few minutes before we get into this uh, this this episode of this little small trial that takes place. Anyway, uh, thank y'all for coming. Thank y'all for listening.